Luddites were saying like, what if instead of having mills full of machines with children chained to them, we had workers involved in the rollout of this. We ensured that the products were good, that the working conditions were safe, that the profits were shared, that the traditional ways of working that enhanced family community were still together. The response of the system was mass hangings. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Farm to Tabor. Joining us today is Corey Doctorow to talk about some technology culture stuff and how to not lose everything to capitalism and technology. So um, did I do it? Did we cover everything there? That's my entire thesis. You've set it up beautifully. The original subtitle of this book was a big tech disassembly manual. So maybe we're here to talk about how to disassemble big tech. Sounds good to me. So how do we get started? Well, sure. So I guess one area of overlap between your interest and mine is the extent to which a small number of large firms have cornered markets. That is both true, I think, of agriculture broadly and its downstream industries, things like meatpacking and processing and seed and so on, but also true, obviously, of the technology platforms, whether that's John Deere or the mobile duopoly. The book is aimed at understanding what tech shares with other concentrated industries and how it differs, and then how those differences allow tech fighters or people fighting for better tech to reach solutions that are not possible for other sectors that are distinct to the technical contours of technology itself. So maybe we could start with the thing that tech shares with other sectors, which is this concentration and its underlying source, which is that 40 years ago, starting with Carter, famously a farmer, but then under Reagan especially, we stopped enforcing the normal competition laws in the U.S. and then shortly all around the world as part of something that's like broadly called the neoliberal revolution, the Reagan revolution. And specifically, we stopped caring about whether companies grew so big that they could abuse their workers or undo our political system by capturing their regulators. And we started focusing on whether or not a company's size was harmful to what the economists who pushed for this called uh, consumer welfare, which broadly is like whether prices went up. Secondarily, whether quality went down, although less so that. And what that meant was that so long as a company could at least temporarily offer lower prices following some anti-competitive conduct, like buying a competitor or using predatory pricing to keep predators from entering the market or to crush a competitor, they were broadly allowed to continue that conduct. And that moreover, even if they did raise prices subsequently, or even immediately after a merger, if they could find a Chicago school trained economist who would make a model uh, that only the Chicago school understood that supposedly proved that the reason prices went up was not to do with their monopoly, but rather because oil prices went up or labor prices went up or the moon is in Venus or whatever, mm. they would be left alone. And so you can think of this as being like 40 years ago, we stopped putting rat poison down and now there's rats everywhere. And there's a bunch of people running around with what I think we can only interpret as bad faith saying, God, I don't know where all these rats came from. Right. And so whether that's the couple of companies that do all the meat or the couple of companies that do all the chicken or the company companies that do all the seed 
or the one company that does all the eyeglasses or the one company that does all the cheerleading or professional wrestling or the two beer companies and the two spirits companies or the four beer companies or the three intermodal shipping companies. There, that concentration is ubiquitous. It's not just tech. But then there's some stuff that's different about tech. And it's about this irreducible phenomenon in digital computing, which is that the only computer we know how to make is the universal computer, what, what computer scientists call the Turing complete universal von Neumann machine. And it's the computer that can run all the programs we know how to write. Like we can't make a computer that just runs programs that we desire uh, or that the manufacturer desires. Like we don't know how to make a printer that can't also run malware, which is why periodically printers get viruses and attack all the computers on your network. This is why you can run Doom on anything, right? It's... Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's why you can run Doom on anything and install Linux on a dead badger and all those other things. And there are lots of ways in which it would be incredible if we could make computers that could only run some programs, but like we don't know how to make those computers. We just know how to make the computers that run all the programs. And so on the one hand, that means that if you are a monopolist, you have like a kind of speed and flexibility that as a digital monopolist, you don't get as an analog monopolist, right? Like even if you could spy on every person who came into your store and deduce or recover facts about them that would allow you to predict how you should reorder your inventory so that they were incentivized to get the most expensive thing they were willing to buy, there's just not enough minimum wage workers in your store to run around and reorganize the shelves between that person walking in and, and them making their purchase decision. But if you run a digital store, like every person can see a, digital, a different storefront. And when industries are very concentrated, they tend not to be regulated effectively because a small number of companies both has a lot of money and an easy time agreeing on how to spend it. And so they generally get their regulatory priorities and so for digital firms, that means that they're not constrained by like labor law or fair trading law or privacy law very famously. So they have a very free hand when it comes to playing the shell game and rearranging the, the cups. And in any shell game, the quickness of the hand deceives the eye. And so the speed with which they operate just gives them an enormous advantage over us. And then the inverse of that, and this is the final point, is that the tech firms have captured their regulators, not just to stop regulators from passing digital laws, but to get them to pass digital laws that are favorable to them and disfavorable to us. Because one of the outflows of the fact that computers are digital, is you can always design a computer to do something that gives you more power than the company that made it. So you could always modify a printer to take third-party ink. You could modify a John Deere tractor to allow a honeybee head end uh, instead of a John Deere head end or to allow third-party repairs. You could modify Facebook to have more privacy respect. You could modify Instagram to let you just see the posts from the people that you follow and not promoted posts or ads. Um, all of those things are available to you and not technically challenging. They're just illegal. So you have a, an industry that's hugely concentrated. So you don't have many places to go. That industry is allowed to abuse you very quickly. So it's hard for you to get a better deal. And you are not allowed to take self-help measures that might give you a better deal or, or help you kind of clamp down on their risks as they're spinning the shell game and, and allow you to peek under the shell and see where the shell is, the pee is before you make your choice. And you combine those three things and you get a tech sector that is really horribly abusive in ways that other industries would like to be but can't quite manage because they don't have the flexibility that we have. 
but you also have the potential for self-help measures and other measures that would allow us to reverse what I've been calling their shitification and, and make a better deal. Like we could, on the one hand, force them to open up their platforms so that they would have to run the programs that would allow us to, say, leave Facebook, join another service, but continue to exchange messages with the people we left behind. So you wouldn't be faced with this stark choice of allowing Mark Zuckerberg to spy on you and having all those bad things that happen to people who use Facebook or giving up the family, the community, the friends, the customers that you rely on, on Facebook. You could have your cake and eat it too. You could leave Facebook, but continue to be a part of that. And we could also empower uh, new market entrants. So whether that's co-ops or small businesses or nonprofits or community groups or individual tinkers or, or even other big companies to reverse engineer and otherwise hack into these big services to allow us to get a better deal. Like, I don't think much of Walmart, but I think if you said to Walmart, hey, there's no legal reason you can't go to the 10% of Apple software vendors who represent 90% of its revenue and offer to take 15% for them instead of 30 and then preload their apps on a dongle that will jailbreak your iPhone that you sell for 99 cents in the checkout line, I think Walmart would do it, right? And like those companies would be more profitable. They would have the ability to lower prices. New companies could enter the market. So there are a lot of companies whose margins is just less than 30%. That's what each app store takes. Those businesses just don't exist. Like there aren't really any ebook stores that you can buy ebooks from on iOS. You have to go to the web and buy the ebook and then download it because the margin is like less than 30% for most of these stores. And so they can't make a living at it. So Apple Books and Google Books are really the only stores going along with Kindle, which is willing to cross subsidize it. But you could have all kinds of companies enter that market, including independent authors, if we could just cut their gigantic transaction fees down to size. And if we did that, we'd make them weaker because they'd be in a sector that had a lot more participants, which would mean that they'd have fewer profits, but they would also have a harder time agreeing on how to mobilize those profits. Whenever a regulator said, what should we do? Instead of four giant companies turning up and saying, we should do things that are good for us, you'll get a hundred companies turning up four big companies, but then 96 medium-sized companies that would have completely different stories and regulators would have an easier time discovering the truth, figuring out when a regulatory intervention really would help us as participants rather than just the companies and their shareholders. So that's a very long answer, but that's effectively my hypothesis there. Right. Yeah. A lot of overlaps, a lot of differences too. Every metaphor is going to get stretched if you take it too far. But yeah, there's a ton of overlaps there with agriculture and the food system. So yeah, like it, we see a lot of this behavior in every sector. So funny you should mention the John Deere thing. Actually, I have a podcast episode from a couple months back with a guy who used to be a John Deere combine tech. So like he did the sorcery that like the common folk aren't allowed to do or whatever. So some really interesting uh, takes on that there, which we don't have to dive into right now. But like if, if you love John Deere combine repair tech, it's an episode for you. I think that guy's in IT now because there was so much IT involved in John Deere sure. combine repair. that That's what he does now. He finally made it out of agriculture. He was like, it's still a good thing. <laughs> but yeah. Is there anything we can do to kind of jailbreak ourselves out of this? Sure. Well, I think there's very little people can do as individuals. And I think that, you know, there's enormous pressure. One of the pieces that comes along with the neoliberal ideology of tolerating monopolies is the idea of thinking of ourselves just as individuals and not as members of a polity and thinking of systemic solutions as having individual answers. And so, you know, you, we've all heard that you should vote with your wallet. 
And I've, I've read what you have to say about shopping at farmer's markets, for example, as a way of voting with your wallet. Yeah, like it, it's I mean, fine, lots... but the overall like market power is just not there. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like the problem with voting with your wallet is you're implicitly saying that the people who have the biggest wallet should have more the most votes. And there's another way to vote, which is with your ballot. And there's another way to participate, not as a consumer, but as a citizen or as a member of a polity. And in the same way that there isn't like an amount of recycling you can do that will stop your house from burning down in the next heat dome or being washed away in the next flood or like having to drink your own urine in 20 years because all the fresh water is gone, right? There's like just not a way that you can individually use technology that's going to resolve this. There are things you can do that will make your situation better. And there are things we can ask the big companies to do that will make the experience of the people who use them better. But to maybe borrow another kind of land use metaphor here, prior to the colonial era, indigenous people in California where I live used to have periodic controlled burns. And that would minimize the amount of fuel on the forest floor. It would open the canopy. It would get rid of dead trees. And it kept the system dynamic and also safe. And when the colonizers declared war on fire, they didn't eliminate fire. They just eliminated controlled fire. And what they created was wildfires. And if we resolved all of the climate issues that we have right now, California would still be at an enormous fire risk because of all of that fire debt we've built up. And when we used to allow tech firms to be toppled by new market entrants, first because we stopped them from buying their threats out or or neutralizing them with predatory pricing and other anti-competitive tactics, but also because it remained legal for new market entrants to reverse engineer and make compatible or interoperable products that would let you escape from big tech. You could take all the programs and data from your IBM 360 into a DEC mini computer. You could take all your Windows Office files, Microsoft Office files onto a Mac and run them on iWork, which is pages, numbers, and Keynote. Because people were allowed to do that, because there were off-roads to escape from big tech and go to another firm, the companies were always cycling in and out. So, you know, IBM 360 was destroyed by the digital equipment company whose PDP mini computers were amazing. You know, within like a decade and a half, PDPs were uh, on the scrap heap of history And DEC was a division of Compaq, a company that got started cloning IBM PCs, and then Compaq fell apart. There were controlled burns all the time. And so now we've got a lot of fire debt in tech, and tech is always on fire. And in California, we have this double problem, which is fire debt, and also the extraordinary likes that we're going to to make the urban wildlife interface safe. And that's not just a problem because it takes resources away from things that we might use to actually pay down that fire debt, like doing controlled burns, but also because it puts more people in harm's way. More people move into the urban wilderness interface if you put a lot of energy into it, into making it safe. And then those people become a reason to put yet more energy into it because there's now more people at risk from these fires. And we get farther and farther away from a real solution. In the same way, a lot of our efforts to make big tech better like telling big tech that they have to spy on all of their users and exert control over them to prevent the very, very real harassment problems, cut against the evacuation of big tech, where we might say, actually, we're going to force you to interoperate with smaller platforms that have to be more responsive to the moderation desires of at-risk users so that your users can leave and go somewhere else, right? We can evacuate the fire zone. 
rather than trying to make the urban wildlife interface safe. And so as an individual, a lot of the choices that might allow you to exert discipline over these big firms, right? To hit them where it hurts, to starve them of capital by not being a source of, of revenue for them anymore are really off limits to you because you can't just leave. Sure, you can do what I did, which is go to Mastodon, but most of your friends won't be there. And like, it should be obvious, but a social media network where the people you like aren't hanging out is not a good social media network, irrespective of its other features, right? So what we have to do instead is think of ourselves as a polity. Now, politically, we are at a moment unprecedented in you know, recent history, say two generations in terms of the energy and muscular action being taken to rein in large firms of every kind, but especially tech. So there is a Google antitrust case going on right now. One thing to remember, it's a long shot. I won't kid you. They are trying to reverse 40 years of bad precedent and, and start building new good precedents. And that's going to be a long project and there'll be a lot of losses before we start getting wins. But, you know, Microsoft went through a seven-year antitrust trial very famously. And despite eventually winning, which is to say they got a victory at a lower court and then G.W. Bush got elected and decided not to appeal it, basically took the DOJ off the case. They were so scarred and traumatized by the seven years they spent in antitrust hell that when a couple of kids from Stanford named Larry and Sergey started a new search engine, they didn't do to that search engine, which was called Google, what they had done to another couple of kids who started a browser company called Netscape. We wouldn't have Google and we wouldn't have a lot of other uh, tech companies that today need to be cut down to size if it wasn't for the rough ride. So the process can be the punishment. And one way the process can be the punishment is if we as members of the polity watch, cheer on and clamor for victory by the DOJ, pay attention to it with the importance that it deserves. It is a real important thing that can materially affect your life. And that itself will make Google executives and Google employees and Google investors feel like whatever happens as a result of this case, they got to clean up their act. And I hope they're going to win. I hope the DOJ will win. But even if they lose, this could exert enormous power against them. Mm -hmm. There's also legislation pending. So there's something called the America Act that would break up both Google and Facebook. And it to call it bipartisan is to kind of undersell it. Like the two main sponsors are Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz, Right. That's pretty goddamn bipartisan. It needs our political support. And again, it's one of those things that we can pay attention to and call your senator and ask them to vote for it and let them know that it's a priority for you. And of course, you can vote with your wallet. You can use free and open tools. You can, you know, encourage your friends to go somewhere else. If you are the kind of person that your friends will change services to talk to you or open account on another service, you can tell your friends, look, I'm just not on Twitter anymore or Facebook or Instagram. If you want to stay in touch with me, you have to go to Mastodon. Now, maybe you're, you're not the kind of person who has social power over your friends. I have some of that social power. I do it. I'm, it's not a huge sacrifice for me because in general, I have a fairly asymmetrical relationship with a lot of the people I want to talk to and they want to talk to me more than I want to talk to them and they'll switch. If that's too high price for you, I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, like certain people are in better positions to work on certain parts of this culture-wide monopoly problem that we have than others, for example. This is something you hear in, in food all the time, and you kind of mentioned this, you know, like, oh, just shop at the farmer's market or just grow it yourself. 
which is wild because if you're familiar with like traditional farming societies, like most people in so-called traditional farming societies are not personally farming, right? If you're old, if you're really young, there's usually a gender divide as to who actually farms. And interestingly enough, in some cultures, it's men and in some cultures, it's women. And like, they all feel very strongly that the other way is wrong. Yeah, that's called schismogenesis. We're the people who do things differently from the way the other people do. They're the people who have women farm and we're the people who have men farm. Or like when European colonists ran into the people in the Eastern woodlands, they saw women farming and they were like, well, that can't be farming. (laughs) If women are doing it, that's another (laughs) way to do it, right? That can't be real work. Right. But yeah, so like... We have this idea, and this could come back to the traditional homestead, go west, young man solution to all of our cultural problems. The U.S. really used, like, if you were unsatisfied with society because there was no golden age in U.S. history, wages were always bad, like, basically until the New Deal, which did not fix farm wages and the post-World War II era. So before that, we had the Gilded Age, slavery. There is no golden era in U.S. history when things used to be good, right? So that's what we had homesteading for. Was, Maybe was, pre-contact? Yeah, like we're, we're talking Anglos, right? We're talking like, yeah, we're talking settler society. So there is no golden age in there. That's why homesteading existed was a pressure valve to right. get rid of people who are dissatisfied, like get them out somewhere. They can get shot at by the people we're trying to take over. And then it's no skin off our nose and we get rid of our malcontents. And then we also claim some more land that like the richer people can come and grab later, right? That was really what homesteading was for. And that's why we have such a strong culture of like, if you're unhappy with how things are working, you go fix it yourself by yourself. Good luck to you. We have such a culture of individual action. Get out of here. We don't want to hear your rebel rousing is really kind of where this like entrepreneurial homesteader culture came from. And don't get me wrong. I'm a small business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. It's a great life if a little unsteady. But that also means I have a front row seat on how it cannot solve all problems. And a really interesting thing about the homestead model and entrepreneurship is the line between like just a little guy on a little plot and a land baron or say a couple guys in the garage and a tech mobile is not that thick, right? It's a pretty thin line. So you'll have stuff like Jeff Bezos kind of going like, this is when I started Amazon in 1991 in my garage. Obviously, he was not actually that poor at that time. Um, but I was a humble investment banker right. when I when it came to me mm-hmm. to start my Amazon company. Yeah. 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 So, but you have this mythology of a couple guys in a garage, right? Because that is true for enough people that it's like you can kind sure. of make that, generalize yeah. that. And a similar thing with homesteading, right? The people who are successful at it, by and large, like who can afford to move cross country, grab a piece of land, develop it immediately and make a living off of it? It ain't poor people. There is kind sure. of a saying that like the poorer the farmer was, the more frequently they move. So you see this actually in Little House on the Prairie. Pa Ingalls was like a serial debt skipper. That's why they were always moving. Right. And also his daughter was a crazy libertarian. Ideologue. Granddaughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her granddaughter, rather, who yeah. wrote a series of books about that lionized individuality and glossed over all the collective. Yeah. Things that were the whole thing about her being BFFs with Ayn Rand. They're just like people gloss over that stuff. Kind of feels like yeah. it matters to yeah. me. But yeah, like Laura Ingalls, the the daughter and, and the mom of the of, of Rose Wilder Lane, like her life story was a series of failing to make a living at farming until actually sure. she started an agritourism business. So she started a boarding house and she said, I couldn't make money farming. So I grew food and I cooked it for the people in my boarding house. And that's when I finally started making money. So right. Agritourism, right. 1880s style. Picks and shovels. Yeah. And then when she started making books about it, so media about agriculture. So you hear stuff now right. about well, like farmers can make more money on YouTube than they can make farming. And I'm like, oh, it's been like that for how long now? So I, there's a really interesting analogy, I think, between what you're describing and the relationship of farming and the New Deal, 
to what I think of as what happened with technology in my boyhood, which was the late 70s and early 80s. We, we got an Apple II Plus in 79. And the early years of computing were pretty terrible, right? Like the use, you know, if you remember the 60s protests where people wore badges that said, I am a human being, do not bend, spindle, fold, or mutilate, and blew up data centers and objected to computers because they were being used to prosecute the Vietnam War and being used as part of kind of the rationalization of surveillance in America and being used to make insurance companies better at discriminating against people. All these things that were not great. Technology was like a very anti-human force. And then we had a revolution with the personal computer, the, the um, broad accessibility of computers relative to the historic character of them, the training of multiple generations of technologists who didn't come from a technical background. So one thing you can think about the dot-com bubble is doing is like basically using pension funds money to like teach humanities majors to do HTML and Perl. But as a result, we got a completely different kind of technologist for the first time. It was really uh, an amazing moment. And then the revolution was clawed back, right? Then monopolists took over and took it away. And we can think of the New Deal as being like this as well, right? We have, a, we have this moment where a country tries to live up to its mythology because there was lots of mythology about computers and their liberatory power and very short on, on actual liberation. Same, I think, is true of the American story of, of freedom and liberation and self-determination, which by seeking freedom from want and freedom from fear, the, the New Deal tries to attain. But the New Deal was incomplete. Famously, it didn't reach to farm workers. It was limited in its impact on people of color. The liberatory movement that it started took a long time to address the issues of women and never completed that, to say nothing of gender issues, issues of indigenous justice, and so on. And the bad part of the New Deal was that it didn't finish that stuff. It's not that it started that stuff. That's the good part of the New Deal. And the bad part of the technology revolution is that it's unfinished, not that it happened. Mm -hmm. and, and so I like the old good internet but I don't want the old good internet back. I want a new good internet that tries to finish the work of the old good internet in the same way that I think neo-Brandeisians, hipster antitrust people like me, don't want the new deal. We want a new new deal, right? We want a new deal that is more inclusive, that is more universal, that finishes its work, that includes the job guarantee that FDR thought would be too hard to get through, that includes the universal health care that FDR left unfinished and thought it would be too hard to get through with a leader who isn't as flawed as FDR, right? It's not a nostalgic movement. It is a forward-looking movement. Nostalgic is a toxic impulse. Yeah. Okay. Huge overlap there. Yeah. So in agriculture, again, there's a lot of nostalgia. There's the prevailing sentiment in food reform for the last 20, if not 60 plus years, you know, since World War II has been, we need to turn the clock back to XYZ time which we can talk about why there's a specific time period they pick and some interesting stuff that was going on there and why it cannot be replicated and should never, we should not attempt it. But yeah, nostalgia. Is answer slavery? Uh, Jim Crow, actually. like Jim Crow, right. Like, yeah. Slavery's legacy? Yeah, not yes. that slavery is fine, but like the, the stuff happening in U.S. Yeah. agriculture today, like the Civil War kind of like broke the system that slavery operated on. Like obviously there's still a lot of racism, sharecropping came in afterwards, but the food system we have now is like a direct outcome of Jim Crow. So when people talk about the history of racism in America, there's rightfully a lot of focus on slavery. 
but a lot of the stuff we're experiencing today is actually like a Jim Crow descendant. And Jim Crow is bigger than the South, too. So no, I thought that so when I became a U.S. citizen, I was reliably assured that the Civil War was about bad people in the South and good people in the North and that there was no racism north of the Mason-Dixon line. All the racism was contained south of the Mason-Dixon line. And then they went and they fought it and they ended it. Right. Yeah. So like as a Southerner who believes in civil rights, it's really interesting to talk about the Civil War because you're like, absolutely, I'm glad we did this and I would do it again. But at the same time, in the food reform movement in general, there's it's nostalgia. Like nostalgia is the prevailing principle. We need to turn the clock back to a time when everything was good, which obviously if you ask anybody who wasn't a landed white dude, they would kind of be like, was it? But there's this consensus in the food movement that it was good, like this era that was really good for a specific class of people, which, again, we'll talk about the Norse role and Jim Crow. It's crazy. But that specific class of people in the North and the South, white male landowners, had a great time, 1900 through 1920, high to Jim Crow because of Jim Crow. Um, and when people... I saw that in the documentary uh, Gone with the Wind, and that made that very clear. <laughs> yeah, the film industry just like went right into it. Like as soon as it got bored, it was like, and now we're going to romanticize this now that we exist as well, an information technology. Earth right? of a nation, right? Yeah. <laughs> very famous um, life. Yeah. Having grown up in the shadow of Gone with the Wind. There's classy Southern girls and then there's the rest of us, right? The day I found out that some people like looked up to Scarlett O'Hara and thought she was an aspirational figure, I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, are we living in the same reality? Because she looks like a rich brat who I would not enjoy hanging out with. Like I knew a lot of people like her and thought, hmm, she doesn't seem great. So that was an interesting cultural disconnect. Having grown up in a Southern family, I was like, well, people feel this way about her. Okay, so <laughs> this nostalgia principle in agricultural reform, this idea that things used to be good. Prior to 1900, family farms did not really make money it was you kind of take your chances uh, only people who really prospered getting a farm were already wealthy the vast majority of homesteading as we call it was not actually homesteading where you get a free plot and you have to just stay there for five years that was actually a very limited program that only existed in specific places where land speculators couldn't figure out how to flip properties so actually florida was the first place they did this because the u.s government could not figure out how to beat the seminoles they are still undefeated and so they said, well, instead of sending the U.S. Army down, because we just keep losing, guys, let's send some settlers down there and they can duke it out. Hey, guys, there's free land down here. Great Plains, similar reason. Typically, acquiring a farm for yourself was like not a scrappy go out in the woods, let's camp kind of situation. It was more like, in most cases, a really routine, boring real estate deal. If you look at, like, talk to a guy who is like a historian who is Shawnee. And he said, we were looking at our land records and I need to Ben Barnes. I think it's Ben Barnes. It was like we were looking at our tribal land records and we'd been told, oh, we, we're clearing you out to make way for homesteaders, right? But we opened up the books and how these lands, our lands were divided up. And it was huge tracts sold to real estate speculators. So that was the true form of the thing. The United States government just kind of figured like, hey, we just fought the Revolutionary War. We have all these debts. We have no resources except for all this land, which is pretty cheap for us to steal from people. So let's do that. If you give it away for free, you're not making money on it, right? So you have to sell it wholesale to large land speculators who would then cut all the trees, sell them for timber, basically cart away anything that wasn't bolted down. And then once you've cleared the land and cleared all the timber, then you have all this bare land left over. And you can carve it up into tiny little plots and sell it to suckers and call it homesteading or just, you know, call it small farming, right? So like small farming as a theme in U.S. history exists to do to serve a couple of settler needs, right? So number one, send settlers into places that not even the army can succeed and see if they can do it, right? So Again, Florida because of the Seminoles, the Great Plains because of the Lakota, and because there just were no trees to make it worth going out there to be a land speculator. 
and then Oregon, because the U.S. didn't actually own Oregon. And they're like, if we can send enough people out there, then we can claim it from Britain, right? So those are the three instances where homesteading was actually a thing. The rest of the time, starting a small farm was just like, got a big nest egg? Go buy a property. It was just getting on the property ladder, right? So all that being said, so that's a quick intro, right? Prior to 1900, people didn't really make a lot of money doing that. It was kind of like, well, we're really far out from supply chains. We can make a lot of butter, but we can't get it back to a city where they want to buy it. So you wound up with like just periodic commodity booms and bubbles. The Whiskey Rebellion in 1790, 1791. They were growing a ton of corn and didn't have a good way. They were just out in the middle of nowhere growing all this corn, didn't have a good way to ship it back. I think the Haitian Revolution actually, like a lot of the corn and corn-fed products in the North, they were selling them down to Haiti to supply slave camps. And when the Haitian Revolution broke out, then you lost all these slave owners Mm. who were buying your nice stuff. So I think that's why they wound up with a glut. Historians mm. can double check me on this. That That is my feeling as to where corn gluts usually come from. You lose an export market, right? So the, the U.S. has been overgrowing corn since the 1790s. It's not because it's subsidies, right? It's because we just have a subtler system where we're like, okay, if you're feeling ambitious, go out in the middle of nowhere, grow a bunch of crop, and we don't really know what comes next. You know, the public-private partnership you're describing there, where there were things that were unattainable or unfeasible for the state. And so they outsourced it, outsourced it to the private sector. The thing that it obviously reminds me of is what's happened with privacy. I talk about privacy to a lot of different audiences, including both technical and policy audiences. And if I go to the Beltway and I talk about privacy to military contractors or, say, the Cyber Institute at West Point or people involved in government who have clearance they will say, I don't worry about the NSA spying because they're only collecting information that I had to give to the Office of Personnel Management in order to get my security clearance. Uncle Sam already knows everything about me. But Google, those guys would sell their mother for a nickel. I don't want them to have my data. And then if you go to Google and you give the same talk, they're like, tech companies just want to show you better ads. We don't care if they've got our data. But the government, those are the people who are too dumb to get jobs at Google. I don't want their thick fingers all over my data. But the reality is that the reason tech companies are allowed to spy is that every time we try to rein in their surveillance, cops and spooks show up and say, hey, we can't afford to do the spying that the tech companies do because the tech companies make us pay for it, right? You buy the phone and you pay the bill in order to generate the surveillance data about your activities. And the quid pro quo there is that the tech companies are very loose about sharing data with um, the the cops. So ring doorbells, obviously, are a source of enormous amounts of off-the-book surveillance data for cops and for spooks. And I don't think it's because Amazon set out to provide that per se. Like, I don't think Amazon was like, you know what's going to really make us a lot of money is having a giant office that does nothing but field law enforcement requests. So we're going to actively market this to cops as a way to get data that they wouldn't be able to otherwise get. It's because they understood that there was a backlash that was brewing from the start from the profoundly unneighborly business of training a camera on your street and making videos of everyone who walks past your house. And what they wanted was to have allies. And You cannot really understand the privacy problem in the United States, which has not really had a meaningful, broadly applicable privacy law since we passed a law making it illegal for video store clerks to disclose your rental habits. That's like the last major U.S. federal privacy law that we got. 
and was mostly about stopping um, video store clerks from telling newspapers what porn Congress people were watching. I'll say that feels very 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. 80s, early, early 80s. Yeah. All right. Nice. And so the reason for that really needs to be understood as this public private partnership that is very durable. And it has ever been thus with tech monopolies. So tech monopolists, like land developers, have always figured out ways to insinuate themselves into the public business so that they could remain part of the or procure these powerful public allies. So like AT&T, the, the first attempt to break up AT&T was in the 1910. It didn't happen until 1982. It almost happened in 1952. But the Pentagon showed up and told the DOJ, we will lose the war in Korea if we don't have Ma Bell. Now, they lost the war. <laughs> Ma Bell lasted another 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that these are neither private sector problems nor public sector problems, but rather private public problems, I think is part of the way that we have to understand how to resolve these problems. The corollary is that without these public allies, these private companies would lose. And those public allies are hypothetically or theoretically or eventually publicly accountable in the way companies can't be, right? Unless you acquire a significant commercial interest, a stake in a company, or unless you can really organize a big boycott, the company doesn't have to do what you say. But if you organize a political constituency, you can force public agencies to change their conduct. And so this is one of the areas where we need to be thinking about ourselves as a polity. Mm -hmm. Well, it kind of makes me feel like Twitter being broken up as the public square was not an accident. It just doesn't feel like accidental to me, which is not to say Twitter was paradise. That place, hell site, so good. But it was really, really effective at enabling dissent. Right. The problem with Twitter <laughs> wasn't that problem. it didn't have a right-wing weirdo running it. There were lots of problems with Twitter, but this didn't make it better. There's that famous quote when they asked Joe Lewis why he'd enlisted to fight World War II when he was a civil rights fighter and he was adverse to the U.S. government in so many ways. Why was he stepping up to defend the U.S. government? And he said, there's plenty wrong with America, but Hitler's not helping. Fair. Yeah. I mean, like already we're seeing with Naomi Wu sure. was really protected by her high profile for a very long time on Twitter. And now that people are leaving Twitter, she's getting a lot more harassment from the state and basically had to quit doing what she does publicly because of that loss of visibility. That's a pretty fairly immediate outcome. Like Twitter's still there, but it's not what it used to be. That happened pretty fast. And so. you can see how the ability of Twitter to block interoperability makes people have these uh, very difficult choices where they don't like Twitter, Twitter puts them at risk both in kind of emotional ways, but also in immediate physical ways, like risk of getting doxxed and so on. And uh, they still stay. And there's a story about tech being addictive that we hear a lot. Particularly, we hear it from tech executives who kind of boast about it, right? Facebook is like, we're evil wizards who hacked your dopamine loop. And that's why you hate Facebook, but you can't leave. And Look, everyone who ever claimed to have perfected mind control was either bullshitting themselves or the rest of us. Whether Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Rasputin, MK Ultra, pickup artists, right? They're all lying, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a much simpler explanation. And you can see it on Twitter now. I'm not still on Twitter because I'm addicted to Twitter. I'm still on Twitter because if I leave, I have to give up the people who matter to me there. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is that Twitter uses the law to prevent technical solutions like reverse engineering, scraping bots, 
that would allow me to go somewhere else, but continue to post and read the posts that were made to me. And also because there is no law that requires them to facilitate that. And either one of those, but ideally both of those in concert would create the circumstances in which I could leave Twitter and continue to enjoy the benefits that I get from it. And hypothetically, that might discipline Elon Musk as, as it might discipline other people who own firms. Apple might be smarter about its moderation for app stores and more respecting of its users' privacy. It's, it's not well known, but after Apple gave it its users a one-click option to opt out of Facebook surveillance, they turned on non-opt-out surveillance for Apple. They gather all the same data Facebook was gathering and they use it for- the I was going to say, that seemed data. too good to be true. So now we know. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean- Firms are are very good at defending you from threats, but not when the threat is themselves. And mm-hmm. it might discipline Apple if Apple knew that you could legally jailbreak your phone, buy a 99-cent dongle in the checkout aisle at Walmart, or download some stuff from a hobbyist or from a startup or, you know, from your local library that would jailbreak your phone and let you install another app store and stay away from the surveillance that might stop them from doing it in the same way that the fact that you could leave Twitter but stay in touch with the people you left behind on Twitter might make Musk be more considered in the way that he takes his judgments. But if it didn't, then you could just leave, right? Like that's the beauty here. And much of the book is organized around presenting a kind of administratable way of of doing this, a way to build interoperability mandates and rights such that they balance each other out. So we might order Facebook or Twitter to do something, but after we order them to do it, in order to stop them from cheating, we need something else because if they cheat, it's going to be hard to detect. It's going to be hard to prove and it could go on for many years. And these small companies that we're hoping will show up and give us alternatives might leave. And that something else is a self-help measure where you can do reverse engineering if the mandate isn't doing it for you. And in order to make both of those things safe, we need things like privacy and consumer protection and labor law that apply to digital platforms. Arguably, I think a lot of those laws already apply to digital platforms, but the platforms have managed to elude uh, enforcement. But basically, rather than saying to Apple, you decide what constitutes unacceptable privacy conduct and defend me from the unacceptable things, we ask democratically accountable lawmakers to do that. If we can do those three things, right, give them orders give us self-help rights and then limit everyone's conduct in the scope with the scope of consumer protection, labor and privacy laws, then we can build something where you don't have to prove that Facebook was cheating. All you need is to make sure that the people who are uh, negatively affected by the cheating, whose small services can no longer talk to Facebook can then switch to reusing reverse engineering to continue on. And maybe that'll make Facebook better, right? Facebook doesn't like, to have to go to his shareholders and say, all our engineers spent this quarter fighting people who were scraping the service because we couldn't sue them because we've lost that right. And as a result, we didn't roll out any of our products. That's the kind of thing that causes your share price to experience what Facebook share prices experienced pretty recently, like at the end of the first quarter last year, when they saw a quarter trillion dollars shaved off their market cap, it's the largest single drop in any corporate valuation in human history. And of course, the people who have the most Facebook stock in their portfolios are Facebook executives. So the people who took those decisions would be the people who'd suffer the most. But again, like even if they were rash, even if Elon Musk was not disciplined by this fear, then you'd still have the self-help measure that would kick in. And so I think that this creates a kind of durable remedy. And given that 
there are all these crises that keep coming up in tech because it is on fire, right? Because we do have all of this technology debt because there's no way to operate these giant services at scale well, right? It's not just that Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are the wrong people to be running services with hundreds of millions or billions of users. It's that no one should be running a service that large. You just can't make the judgment calls to handle all those edge cases. Um, And so as these crises abound, we can follow the advice of my arch enemy, Milton Friedman, the guy who created the neoliberal revolution at the University of Chicago, who said, in times of crisis, ideas from the periphery can move to the center and the impossible can become the inevitable. That's how we got the Reagan revolution, right? That's where it came from. And I like to quote Friedman. I like to imagine that he looks up from that spit he's roasting on and gargles a curse at me from around the white hot iron bar protruding from his jaws and the demons laugh and lash him anew and spatter him with fresh molten feces. And this is really detailed. When we think about theories of change here, we need to think about having well-developed ideas in the public sphere so that as these crises arise, they don't go to waste. So that our response to this crisis and the crisis that will come tomorrow and the one that comes after that isn't, let's do the same thing we've been doing all along, but harder and hope for a different outcome. That it's something that we have discussed, that is well-developed, that we understand and that we can mobilize. And for me, that's the point of this book. You asked earlier what individuals can do. It's to make sure that the people around you who you love and care about have a good understanding of why and how tech hurts them. They don't fall prey to the evil sorcerer, dopamine hacker, self-aggrandizing legend. They don't think that the way we're going to solve this is with reforming Section 230 and making tech firms spy on everyone who uses their platforms and kick people off if they think that they might be saying something wrong, which is a thing that is just going to completely destroy the lives of marginalized people who tech platforms will just kick off en masse. And instead, that it is things that have a plausible chance of making our lives better and not just things that feel like they might work. Amazing. It's such an amazing concluding point. And you mentioned something of make sure that we understand what is going on because monopolies are going to keep trying to form, right? So as we see them starting to happen around us, we don't get caught until it's too late, right? So I think a really great example is I think if people had a better understanding of farm history, we would have caught this tech thing decades ago. Can I speed run you through this and, and what we could have seen maybe coming? So sure. All right. So we alluded to Jim Crow, right? So after the Civil War, you have a, a lot of free black people saying, you know, like, my whole family's here. I don't. A lot of people left the South, but a lot of people said, I'm from here. I've been cultivating this land forever. This piece is mine. And so you had a lot of former estates informally get divided up amongst the people who had formerly worked them, right? But the white people are still living in the big house going like, but I feel like it's mine. And so over time, at first, the plantation owners tried to get people to come back and work for them for wages. And then they found out, wait, if we pay them a wage, they can go on strike. Ew. So they instituted sharecropping. You get a certain percentage of the profits, right? Except if you have a whole bunch of workers that you have kept illiterate, like 10% of enslaved people could read and write. It was considered very valuable to be able to do so. So 10% of people were able to, t- to teach themselves. That's still low enough to be able to play some books games. So what slave owners did was now that we no longer have legal ownership over these people, we got to find a new way to control people. So they said, we're going to have you only grow cotton on this land. No growing food, no growing watermelons and other vegetables for sales at the farmer's market. We want you working for me. So only grow cotton. I'm going to share crop you cotton. And like, you don't have a mule, you don't have a plow, so I'm going to loan you that stuff. And then you're going to pay for it with the proceeds of the crop. So when people say things like, 
oh, well, the South grew all cotton because that was the only thing that farmers could get loans for. That doesn't mean from the banks. <laughs> right? Right. That's the thing that gets confused right. a little bit. That was the only thing the landlord would give you a loan for, right? So if you're only growing cotton, what are you not growing? Any food whatsoever. So you have to buy all your food on credit. You're locked in, right? And if you have a landowner who is just fooling with the books, then you're stuck in debt for life, right? So that is the southern end of the sharecropping system, right? So here's the thing. Southern landowners didn't invent sharecropping. They're inventive, but not like in that kind of way. Sharecropping was how they were already doing it in the north. There was a full-on little civil war in the Hudson Valley over sharecropping like in the 1840s, like right before the civil war, right? So they adopted a social technology that had already been perfected in the north, right? So in the north, they had a thing called the agricultural ladder where you start out being a wage worker on a farm and then you get enough tools you can start sharecropping you save up enough money you can start being a cash tenant where you pay your rent in cash so like you rent a farm kind of like you rent an apartment until you can save up money to buy your own place right so that was a thing called the agricultural ladder up in the north and that worked fine as long as the u.s was progressively conquering more and more land you know you do your time you save your money and then there's land you can go buy because it's not really homesteading right you can get involved in property dealings by 1900, that didn't work anymore because we were no longer conquering new land, right? And so the agricultural ladder, like you could work five, maybe 10 years back in the day when the agricultural ladder was working at North. But by 1900, 1920, it was like 20 years. It was your entire like healthy, young working life. Oh, so it's like buying a house. It's still like buying a house. Yeah. I mean, like the US mortgage programs, I think grew out of like, we used to have this program to help people buy their homesteads and make mortgages for homesteads. And then, well, we ran out of farmland so we can help people feel invested in society by buying a house. Like it was a direct translation of the homestead model, right? So like, that's why the US home dream is like a standalone house surrounded by a bunch of greenery. Like it is a direct adaptation of the homestead thing. So if you're a Southern landlord, you're selling corn and fatback and molasses to your staff at an exorbitant markup. Where is it all coming from? Because it's not getting grown in the South. The molasses is coming from the Caribbean. The corn and salt pork are coming from the Midwest. So the height of the system, 1900 through 1920, is like the boll weevil eventually started coming through, so they couldn't grow cotton successfully anymore. So the South actually had to start growing its own food. And like the boll weevil was one of the best things that ever happened to the South because it forced people to diversify and the South to start growing its own food. But 1900 through 1920, that hadn't really kicked in yet. 1900 through 1920 just happens to be what they call the golden age of Midwestern agriculture. So I found some records. They were just talking about like World War One, like food supply chains or something. So there's this congressional testimony. We don't have great statistics on it, but we have a congressional testimony saying like there were just millions and millions and millions of dollars being imported by South Carolina. And you multiply that and it was like a billion dollars worth of food per year in today's equivalent money going from Midwest to the South. So this is when like American Gothic was kind of like the, the lifestyle that that painting was about. It was actually painted in the Depression, but like that era of like, we're just austere, small family farmers, but like by God, we're prosperous because because God loves us. And that's why we're making all this money. I'm like, mm-hmm. nah, Betty, it's Jim Crow. <laughs> right. So Brian Merchant, who's uh, the tech critic at the LA Times, has a book about to come out uh, that we're going to co-launch because my book's out as well uh, on September the 26th as Chevaliers in LA. Mm-hmm. And his book is called Blood in the Machine, and it's about the Luddites. Mm-hmm. Luddites get a really bad rap. The Luddites were not anti-machine. They were a pro worker, right? Like they weren't afraid of machines. To to be a um, a textile worker, you needed a seven year apprenticeship, right? This is like getting a master's degree in engineering from MIT. 
they objected to how the how the machines were used, not the fact that the machines existed. And one of the things they were very upset about was that these machines were built as so easy children could use it, which is why they fired all the adults. And, and they were also so easy women could use them and men weren't in charge of all the household money anymore. <laughs> that's, that's true. Although stocking frames predated that. So they're, they're, I'm talking about the, the, lar- the larger mills. I guess you're right, though. But they scooped up uh, Napoleonic war orphans from the orphanages in London and shipped them north and indentured them for 10 years. Now, a lot of what those mills were weaving was cotton from the New World, mm-hmm. right? And there and the Luddites, interestingly, seem not to have drawn much of an, uh, an understanding about how the logic of slavery was playing into the, the bloody repression that they were seeing then. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the Industrial Revolution that Europe was very upset about was basically slavery techniques getting applied to white people. And so, yeah, there's a lot of socialism in Europe that has failed to make that connection. Charles Babbage, who is credited with designing the first digital computer, although he never built one, the difference engine and the uh, analytic engine, Charles Babbage designed that to improve both plantation management and mill management. And he saw them as related tasks. Mm-hmm. And so these are all related subjects in a very interesting, complicated, and, and often unsavory way. You know, Brian wants us to reclaim the term Luddite. I'm in favor of it. Science fiction's job, because that's my other life as a science fiction writer, science fiction's job is to be a thing that imagines alternatives. And that's what Luddites were doing. They were saying, like, what if instead of having mills full of machines with children chained to them, and one of these kids who survived was a guy named John Blinko, who wrote uh, a memoir that was a bestseller and inspired Dickens to write Oliver Twist, which is basically Luddite fanfic. What if instead of doing that, we had workers involved in the rollout of this? We ensured that the products were good, that the working conditions were safe, that the profits were shared, that the traditional ways of working that enhanced family and community were still together. And you know the response of the system was mass hangings for people who espoused Luddite values, whether or not they'd ever committed a crime. Simply taking a Luddite oath was grounds for being included in mass hangings. They withdrew troops from the front and sent them to the north, right? Like winning the war was less important than putting down the Luddites. And the connection between self-determination and technology, self-determination in your broader life, the agricultural world, the computing world, and the industrial world, those are all intimately connected. And all of those struggles, I think, are different aspects of the same struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really great case in point here in North Carolina. We have a company called the Mount Olive Pickle Company based in Mount Olive, North Carolina. And it's, I'm not sure exactly what the situation is, but it's broadly owned by a lot of people in the town. It's kind of like the Green Bay Packers of pickle companies and uh, not owned by the city itself, but by a lot of people in the town. And I tell you what, Mount Olive is a lot better off than any Smithfield town. So, um, you know, while we're talking about group solutions, you know, like worker owned food handling plants, I think are really, really important thing that we should look at for agriculture. And that's Um, why the, that's why the subtitle of this book is seize the means of computation. Cause the thing that big tech fears the most is technology that's controlled by and for the people who use it. Yeah. I mean, like that's a huge part of how, again, like farm consolidation took place is we have the kind of this mythology and this fiction that family farms bought tractors and started forcing each other out. That is not what happened. It is big landowners bought tractors and evicted their sharecroppers, which was a North and South thing. In 1920, 40% of the farmers, family farmers in Iowa were tenants and sharecroppers. So you had a lot of people working the land who owned nothing with it. And that's how we got here. So again, if we knew our agricultural history better, maybe the tech stuff we would have seen happening a lot sooner than we did. But now we know and we can take action and team up and so forth. So 
Well, thank you. And speaking of teaming up, this has been delightful, Sarah. I've, I've really enjoyed this. I love your work. It's been really nice. And like, I've been loving seeing your stuff come out. And yeah, again, like I, I do my thing that I do in agriculture and I don't always have the best view for how these same problems apply and how they can be solved in technology. So it's just really nice to have someone who does know that stuff working on it. So thanks for your time. It's good seeing you. Stay in touch. Thanks.